It's the August 23rd, 2019 edition of Weekly Signals Meltdown, a reconfiguration of the last 168 hours of history, broadcasting from Studio A at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And, and as always, the second coming of God, Mahler. The fake news dog. <laughs> well, when you're God, you could do it on your own damn time. You know, that confuses me, too. The second coming of God. I'm not much of a theist. I'll put it that way. Yes. I'm not much, I know that much to of be a theist. True. Yes. But isn't God just supposed to be here? Yeah, he's here. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, he's That's here. what I've been told. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how can he come I don't know. a second time? I just, I don't know. I mean, to I be, to be, to be, come once, right? To be... I think he is uh, now and ever re- shall be. To be theistically correct, I believe they're talking about Jesus. So say Jesus, and I don't want to get into the nobody's the Trinity and all Trinity, that. that whole Trinity thing. Yeah, really, when crazy. you break it down, I understand. You it, really break that down; yeah. it gets very weird. Coming up, yes, burping cows, uh, gor- ooh, gorilla gardening, mm-hmm. <laughs> buying Greenland. <laughs> And more. But first, what's your IQ, Mike? Or do you have one? <laughs> do I have one? Yeah. It's, it's, it's in some dispute as to whether or not I have one. I have mastered the art of regurgitation, so I'm not sure exactly what. I do actually regurgitation? Do, no, I actually did an IQ test in high school, so I do know what really? my IQ at that point That's was. That's very unusual. Did you? Do you know what your IQ is? No. Okay. I'm not at liberty to say. Yeah, I think mine is a state secret. <laughs> yeah. Every year, millions of students sit down for standardized tests that can shape their lives. Because you yeah. get a bad score yeah. on the universal standardized test, and they just put you out in a pasture if you don't do any good. <laughs> exactly. The they, tests, they send you off to a trade school. <laughs> well, trade schools are good. No, I know. I, I say that. I'm sorry I said that. that. I that, take that back. Bad. I said that, and I immediately regretted saying that. Unf- yeah. I, I'm sorry. I, I was wrong actually, to say it that way. I have more respect for no, a lot of trade right. schools you're than right. I do for UCI. I apologize for having said that. Yeah. Uh, every year, like I said, millions of students have to take these standardized tests. The tests are like gatekeepers to higher education and job credentials and can de- determine everything from whether a student will graduate to federal funding for schools and teacher pay. Mm-hmm. So not only is it a judgment of you, it's a judgment of the whole system. That's right. More and more, that grading process, the grading process for these tests, even for written essays, has been turned over to algorithms, natural language processing, artificial intelligence systems, or often called automated essay scoring engines. I don't know. That just doesn't, that sounds awkward to me, right? It sounds about right. Yeah, it I sounds mean, awkward because acad- it is. For academia yeah. to do this, yeah. Anyway, these automated essay scoring engines are now either the primary or secondary grader on standardized tests in at least 21 states. So about half the country, at least, uses them. But the algorithms they use are susceptible to a flaw that has repeatedly sprung up in the AI world. That is a bias against certain demographic groups. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Because we speak different, we, we arrange our thoughts a little bit differently That's just because of the cultures we come from. Right. 
and some of the systems can be fooled by nonsense essays that use sophisticated vocabulary. In other words, you can just drop in a big word and the algorithm says, oh, you must be smart. Easy scoring engines don't analyze the quality of writing. They're trained on sets of hundreds of example essays to recognize patterns that correlate with higher or lower human assigned grades. They predict what score a human would assign an essay based on those patterns. You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? They're yeah. looking for yeah. patterns. Yeah. The engines focus heavily on metrics like sentence length and subject-verb agreement, but are unable to judge more nuanced aspects of writing, like creativity. In other words, you can write the most creative essay in the world, and if your sentences aren't long enough and you don't use long words, yeah. you probably get a bad grade. These algorithms gave higher scores to some students, particularly those from mainland China, I thought that was curious, than did expert human graders. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, I, I, that's, that's a strange one right there. That is. The bias can severely impact how students do on high-stakes tests. Another study found that you can have complete incoherence, even like one sentence that has nothing to do with another. So you could just follow one sentence up with something completely different, mm -hmm. that there's no segue, there's no discernible intellectual growth between the sentences, and yeah. yet yeah. it'll give a very high mark from the algorithms. Nonsense essays consistently receive higher, sometimes perfect scores when run through several different scoring engines. You know, this yeah. has been something that um, it is out there in academia. There are people who are pushing back against this. There are people who have figured out ways to game the system. And part of the training for these tests, they tell you to put in big words yeah. or, high, you know, sophisticated words into these uh -huh. essays just randomly. Uh -huh. And that will exactly um, provide the outcome. Sophisticated here. words. Sophisticated words. If you put up the word sophisticated, yeah, they would probably like that. They would. Yeah, they probably would like that. And people are figuring out how to game these algorithms. So. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> oh boy! You know about those wildfires down in Brazil? Oh, please. There's Seventy thousand wildfires have been detected in Brazil's Amazon rainforest this year alone. 70,000. 70,000. It appears that farmers and ranchers are clearing land for crops and cows mm -hmm. by setting these fires. Drought's also a factor in the fires. Right-wing asshat President Jair Bolsonaro is blaming non-governmental agencies and environmentalists because they're blaming him for loosening restrictions on development. That's what's going on there. Well, they, yeah, yeah, the speculation is that they're setting these fires, these farmers are setting these fires in order to essentially, as a welcome mat yeah. to Bolsonaro, as well as to companies who are coming in to yeah. for mining and, and... He wants to develop the Amazon, and this is the cheapest way yeah. to clear it yeah. for development. 70,000. This comes on the heels of the Arctic has been on fire now for several weeks. Yeah. You know what else is going wrong in Brazil? <laughs> Bees. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's and, right. and, and these fires can't be helping the bees. No, this is terrible. And, and as it was described last night, I heard someone talking about this. Not only is the Amazon considered the lungs of the planet, they are responsible for more carbon capture than any entity on the planet. Now with these fires, we're now releasing tremendous amounts of carbon yeah. into the atmosphere at the same time depleting the ability of the Amazon to absorb carbon. Uh-uh. Any, any good. 
More than 5 million bees have died in Brazil in the last three months. You got to up that. More than 500 million bees have died in Brazil in the last three months. That's amazing. That's incredible. Can we go higher? We have 500 million. I got 500 million. Why is 600 million? The main cause of death is the use of pesticides containing products that are banned in Europe like neonicotinoids and fipronil. Right. Those are nasty. The EU imposed an almost total ban on neonicotinoids last April because it kills bees. Because it kills bees. But in the same year, Brazil lifted all restrictions on pesticides. That's Bolsonaro's work there. Yes, yes. Things aren't looking good for bees around the world. No. no. In the United States, beekeepers lost four in ten of their honeybee colonies in the past year, making it the worst winter on record. Now, they're assessing this to two different things. One is the pesticides, and the other is this little tick that has been getting in and boring in on... Been, it just, it's been attacking it goes right them. right to the bee itself. To the bee itself. Yeah. So there are two things in play here. Yeah. But the insecticides are something we can control. We have complete control over the spraying of these crops with these particular yeah, and types. and for of what it's worth, the insecticides don't work on the tick. Well, it's one more ecosystem that is now under duress at a time when our ecological system in general is under a tremendous amount of stress. In Russia, 20 regions reported mass bee deaths with officials warning it could mean 20% less honey being produced. At least 1 million bees died in South Africa in November of 2018 with fipronil being blamed. And countries like Canada, Mexico, Argentina, and Turkey have all reported mass die-offs of bees in the last 18 months. What's so distressing about this is we know what's happening now. There's almost, I think there's basically consensus across the board. The, The only thing that's driving this thing right now is, first of all, farmers need to be convinced a little more, but I don't know why they would need much more convincing if their crops are now going to begin to fail on a massive level. The uh, big chemical companies like Monsanto, like Bayer, all these companies that are pushing this, and the impact of monocrops and now bee collapse is not going to turn out well. The World Wildlife Foundation says unused land that was previously used for development should be managed to better safeguard bead populations. It adds that with greater urbanization happening, more green spaces should be developed to protect bees. And we've talked about this before. Oh, a lot. You can just do it in your garden if you want. Yeah. Bee-friendly plants. Absolutely. And it's real easy to find. You can even just go to Armstrong Nursery or, or listen to uh, our show Thursday. Uh, the Master Gardeners. Thursday morning at yeah. 8.30. They'll yeah. t- Master yeah. Gardeners will talk to you about that. The drought-tolerant native plants are also bee-friendly. California has been good for bees. If you'd like more information, you can go to worldwildlife.org to get to the World Wildlife Foundation. Do it. If this news stings you, may I recommend a donation to KUCI because you're listening? Just go to KUCI.org. Your generous donation is how we stay on air. Commercial form, commercial free, free form, free speech radio at 88.9 FM, KUCI.org. You live on the Coast Highway, right? I do. Yeah. Right off the Coast Highway. You know that smell? I love that, that smell. That wafts off the ocean. I do. Yeah. And I love that smell. 
Sometimes it smells fresh and clean. Yeah, sometimes yeah. it doesn't. Yeah, sometimes clammy, briny. Yeah. Sulfuric. Yes, it does. That smell indicates a plentiful source of what some call anti-greenhouse gas. Now, this isn't necessarily a good story. Okay. Because this anti-greenhouse gas does things that aren't good. Right. It's partially the odor of a dimethyl sulfide. Mm-hmm which is released when marine microorganisms break down another sea nutrient called dimethyl sulfonyopropionate. It's called the anti-greenhouse gas because once it's in the atmosphere, it breaks down into aerosols that allow clouds to form. Those clouds can help scatter UV radiation back into space, creating a cooling effect. Researchers have shown that bacteria hidden deep in the marsh mud can manufacture dimethyl sulfonyopropionate, which is the key ingredient needed to make dimethyl sulfide. Follow so me far, so far, so good. Yeah, yeah I'm liking this. These so findings far. lend themselves to a controversial idea that we might be able to manipulate those marine ecosystems to produce more dimethyl sulfide and try to offset climate change. Right. But the idea has been criticized because it could also cause dangerous algal blooms. Right. And we've talked about that. Yes, we I have. Mean, they're killing all sorts of That's fish right. and marine life remember it killed a dog you know in yeah Alabama. yeah i know I, no i'm not talking about you yeah killed a dog here in california just yeah. the algal blooms are causing a, a fungus so we have the good with this dimethyl sulfide that it could help with climate change but then the bad right. it creates algal blooms this is the world we're heading into is the idea that we're going to be able to engineer our way out of severe climate damage maybe not well, maybe, maybe not, right. But that would be okay if we weren't so gung-ho to continue the development and use of fossil fuels. Yeah. The idea here is, well, we can continue to play this game the way we're playing it now with fossil fuels, with chemicals in the atmosphere and in the environment, all the different things that are so damaging to our ecology. But we'll just come up with a couple of quirky, weird scientific <laughs> tricks to, to somehow begin to try and manage this. Well, we're out of our freaking minds. This is not going to work. We have to change. Why don't we just stop using so much? Why don't we just stop? It's we're always consuming. asking, where can we get energy? Yeah. Well, that's a good idea, and let's look for it. But in the meantime, stop using so much. Yeah, exactly. There is no other way. The behavior of human societies has got to change, and it yeah. has to change quickly and pretty radically. If you're involved in a motorsport, stop it. Yeah. Period. <laughs> that's true. Just stop it. <laughs> uh, here's a better idea. Okay. Did you ever hear a cow burp, Mike? No, I never have heard a cow yeah. burp. No. I don't even know what it sounds like. I don't either. Hey, are you, Molly? I didn't know they burped. You ever hear one burp? Oh, hell yes. Yeah? He's been up close uh, and personal. Yeah. 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 It smells like what? Okay. A pink puffy seaweed that can stop cows from burping. Actually stop cows from burping. They're burping out methane. This puffy pink seaweed is being readied for mass farming by Australian researchers. Okay. The particular seaweed species called Asparagopsis grows off the Queensland coast. It contains chemicals that reduce the microbes in the cow's stomachs that cause them to burp when they eat 
And why is this significant? Because cows, with the massive amount of cows that we have (laughs) in this country, because of the massive meat industry in the world, in the world, world. because of the massive meat industry, you see, we laugh, we laugh and say, you know, cows farting, cows burping, all that. It's like it's a joke. No, they're releasing methane, which is even more damaging to the atmosphere than is carbon. And it is a severe issue. It's a big, big part of the problem with global climate change. Even a small amount of the seaweed in a cow's diet was shown to reduce the animal's gases by 99%. I got to get me some of this stuff. (laughs) Yes. Asparagopsis. When added to a cow's feed at less than 2% of the dry matter, asparagopsis completely knocks out methane production. This is so it doesn't take that much. It's only 2% of what they're eating, of the dry matter that they're eating. If Australia could grow enough of the seaweed for every cow in the nation, the country could cut greenhouse gas emissions by 10%. Yeah. That's a nice no, that's chunk. significant, and that's great. And I, I hope they do, and I hope they incorporate yeah. that into their feed, and I hope they stop burping and farting and all the rest of it. However, there is also water usage in the meat industry. Yeah. There's also runoff. There are all kinds of other issues. The groundwater polluted by all of the feces that are being produced by so it isn't yeah. just stopping them from farting and burping yeah. good yeah stop yeah. eating stop meat eating cows yeah right? yeah stop eating cows Whew. they'll actually eat this stuff it's not like they're force feeding this asparagopsis to cows they'll actually go down the the beach and and graze Asparagopsis. I'm going to start grazing asparagopsis. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I well, like that. Before you eat too much, I'd look into it a little bit. I, <laughs> yeah, it's okay. You might want to dry it out first. I don't know well, what's I was growing gonna, on it. I was going to put it in some miso soup and then Ooh. see how I like it. That well, could be good. Maybe. Look into yeah, it. Yeah. And speaking of grazing, did you know that our food supply is utterly dependent on cheap oil and gas for growing and transportation? Yes, I yeah, did. You just said that. Yes. Over in the city of Bristol, that's in uh, England, England yeah. uh, that's near Portishead on the west coast. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a little indent there. Yeah. And you go in, there's... There's Portishead, and there, then there's Bristol. Yeah? Yeah. They set up a food policy council to produce a plan to promote the use of good quality land in and around Bristol for food production. Yes. This is a good idea. It is. So they're bringing food production into the city. A number of support organizations, horticulturalists, conservationists, and a British chapter of the incredible edible guerrilla gardening movement. Yeah. They worked with the Policy Council on this whole plan. Now, at first, the focus was on straightforward ideas like reviving allotments of land and encouraging container farms that use hydroponics and artificial lighting. But after a couple of years, more people than they had expected started coming in. And they were contacting organizations. They got volunteers. So this is bringing a community together. Right. It's not just right. food and farming. It's bringing the community together so they can actually see the consequences of what they're doing. I think you're going to see a sort of a greenhouse movement in urban areas where small greenhouses can produce a lot of food. Yeah, a small... on top of high rises. Exactly right. They're a great place. Well, how about this? Instead of how about... penthouses right. with pools in drought areas. Right. How about this? We're using, hopefully, as we move away from using cars on the scale that we use today, Mm -hmm. these parking structures, these eight, nine, ten-story parking structures would be perfect for agriculture. Well, I don't know about that, but we'll... Well, I'm just saying, 
perfect and, is a well, tough I mean, word. you're right. Maybe I'm exaggerating. We don't know a if they're bit. built I, to support it, and we don't know about the runoff and all that. But still, yeah, it's a good but idea. I mean, they're they're there. You could put up some glass around the you know perimeter. It's, I don't know what you do exactly. You wouldn't but, even need to make a greenhouse. Just grow right. avocado up there. Right. So I don't know. So, uh, but again, repurposing parts of our community that are now being used by the car culture might be a way in. Parking lots, parking structures, yeah. car lots. <laughs> well, over there in Bristol, they planted herbs, soft fruit, and vegetables with all the food free to anyone who wanted to pick it. Yeah. Three years later, it continues to flourish. Right. The Bristol Food Producers Network has 36 producers within 10 miles of the city. They're creating networks so people can access yeah. land more easily, learn how to grow crops, find markets for their food, and help Bristol to become as self-sufficient as it can be. However, to produce all the food that one average meat-eating British adult consumes in a year, you would need a little over an acre of land. And an acre, that's a lot of land, and there's not really enough land in a city like Los Angeles to feed Los Angeles, yeah. no matter what you do. But they certainly could augment the foodstuffs and cut down on the current petrol-reliant system exactly. that we have now. Exactly. Conventional agriculture analysts usually dismiss new ideas involving small-scale local food production, citing population growth rates that they say mean the world will need 70% more food by 2050. 70% more. That's a lot of food. And pointing out that only large-scale intensive farming could cope to get anywhere near that amount of food. Yeah, that's... And I have a point, but their figures also overlook food wastage, yes. which can be as high as 50%. That was a figure that they got in 2008. We waste half the food I know we do. that we produce. I worked, in a, I worked at a market, and I know how much food they threw away, and it was disgusting. Yeah. That's the drawback of a capitalist system. It is. Not trying to be anti-capitalist here, but that's what happens when you're basing everything on a profit margin you have something that could profit the community and you don't profit the community right it's well and you get tax breaks this is a thing that you incentivize getting rid of food that isn't is really still edible yeah. i understand the safety concerns of course there are safety concerns but the, there are a number of studies have shown that the shelf life of many of the foods that we get rid of very quickly would last a lot longer <laughs> You're, listen, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. Visit us at facebook.com slash KUCI 88.9 on our Tumblr blog at KUCIradio.tumblr.com, on Twitter at KUCI FM, on Instagram at KUCI FM. Stream us live on TuneIn or go to KUCI.org. <laughs> Scientists are bidding farewell to Okjakol. That's the first Icelandic glacier lost to climate change. Researchers gathered to memorialize Okjakol, known as Ok for short, after it lost its status as a glacier in 2014. They put a little memorial up. The inscription says, A Letter to the Future. Ok is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier in the next 200 years all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and know what needs to be done. Only you know if we did it. I don't know what else to say to yeah. that story except that it is beyond depressing yeah. to think about all this. Well, it, who knows? Maybe somebody in the future will read it and go, they did it. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Well... 
You know what happened? Hmm? Do I know what happened? Yeah, do you know what happened? <laughs> Mahler knows. Mahler knows. <laughs> yeah. Right now, from the ice sheet in Greenland to the glaciers in West Antarctica, Earth's enormous masses of ice are melting faster than at any time in history. If glaciers continue to melt at the current rapid rate, the meltdown will pose a number of hazards for the planet. The meltdown can displace people. We know about that. In 2100, up to 2 billion people, or about a fifth of the world's population, could be displaced. Yeah. The meltdown can diminish drinking water. Millions of people depend on glaciers yeah. for drinking water. Right. And if they go, right. no more drinking water. Right. And also, we've talked about this before, as the sea levels rise, the seawater intrudes on the freshwater supply, making it unusable, undrinkable. It threatens our food supply, and it can cause a health crisis. Because as that water is rising, yeah. it's screwing up the sewage systems. Right. Even floods, floods and, inland. It's not just coastal areas, it's floods inland. And airborne diseases from mosquitoes and other insects become yeah. more of a problem, more of a pandemic. This is getting depressing. No, I know. I know. Yeah, depressing, Mahler. Yeah, boy. But, what is it, Mahler? Well, listen, Mahler, uh, every show we try to offer... A little, maybe a, just a sliver of sunshine in this otherwise gloomy mm-hmm. news program. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What's that? You'd like to hear a Trump story? Okay. See if I have one, Molly. Sit down. Once upon a time, an orange gas bag named Trump was scheduled to visit Denmark's Queen Margaret II, who partially oversaw Greenland a huge island in an autonomous region of Denmark. Then last week, <laughs> yeah, yeah, then yeah. last week, the orange Trump bag said his country, the United States of America, wanted to buy Greenland. Ooh. In other words, he treated Greenland like property in Manhattan. Yeah, he, did. he wanted to buy something and some people who lived there who were not for sale. Tell me more about this evil oaf. The Danish prime minister described the suggestion as absurd and said she hoped the orange Trump bag was not being serious. (laughs) The territory's premier said Greenland is not for sale, but Greenland is open to trade and cooperation with other countries, including the USA. Foreign Affairs spokesman for the populist Danish People's Party was more blunt. He said, if Trump is truly contemplating this, then this is final proof that he has gone mad. Yes, that's right, Mahler. So what does the orange Trump bag do? What does he do? He insults Denmark by canceling the state visit to Denmark's Queen Margaret II. (laughs) Keep this in mind. Denmark has been a good ally of the United States for many years. Yes. Denmark lost 43 soldiers in Afghanistan before withdrawing its troops in 2013. Those 43 deaths represent the highest per capita death rate of any member of the coalition, including us. So they lost more people in proportion than any other country in Afghanistan at our request. Yeah. They were part of the coalition of the willing. (laughs) And now, and now, Greenland, Denmark refuses to be bought by the orange Trump bag and gets rewarded with a diplomatic insult. Yeah, 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 that's true. It's all true. And speaking of orange stuff, from this from The Intercept. Yeah. Did you know that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo grew up right here in Orange County, Mike? I did not know that. Yeah. yeah. Fountain Valley. Yeah. Santa Ana area. 
So something leaked into his brain here. In 2013, not long after the Boston Marathon bombings, when he was a Congress member, Pompeo, back then he said, it's been just under two months since the attack in Boston. And in those intervening weeks, the silence of Muslim leaders has been deafening. Well, in fact, every Muslim organization in the U.S. had put out a statement condemning the terror attacks within hours of the blast. Yeah. And this jerk-off, if you'll excuse the expression... No, it's okay. It's, it's appropriate. ...is attacking Muslim leaders. Yeah. Pompeo went on to say that the silence has made those Islamic leaders across America potentially complicit in those acts, and more importantly, still, those attacks that may follow later. That's what he said. Yeah. Democrat Keith Ellison, one of the two Muslim members of Congress, back in 2013 when this happened, complained to Pompeo on the House floor about this insult. But like Trump, Pompeo just doubled down. So yeah. Pompeo, Mike yeah. Pompeo, yeah. our Secretary of State, the guy who's running foreign relations, essentially, for the country. Right. Who has Trump's ear. Yeah. Is an anti-Muslim bigot. Yes, he is. He's also a member of the family. He's also one of the... <laughs> he was like that family. Uh, but you're right. Yeah. yeah. They're a creepy yeah. uh, Christian organization. Yeah, they are. Or I've been born again. talking I, about yeah, them for the, years. The, the Christian Taliban, let's call it yeah, that. Yeah, right? well, they, they are very powerful. They go back many, many, many years have been... Since Eisenhower, they've been an important part of the Washington establishment, and they are frightening. And by the way, I, there's one quote from the story that you're reading from, yeah. which is my favorite quote of the day. <laughs> They're talking to a former ambassador on the obsequiousness of Pompeo. He's like a heat-seeking missile for Trump's ass. Wow. Yeah. And I think that sort of sums up just the connection in oh, terms he, of he kissing. out of Trump's No, I think he, for kissing oh, Trump's I ass. See. Yeah, oh, he's like a heat-seeking missile. I don't like that quote. I like it. Because heat-seeking missile, I wouldn't want to be it, kissed by a heat-seeking missile. I think, he, I would, I think he's they, like a puckering anemone. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I for, took it to mean that if Trump's ass were in somewhere in the vicinity, he'd get there fast. He'd get there in it. a hurry to kiss it. So yeah. that's how I took it. However, but, uh, he's, yeah. I, I, okay. When, Maybe it when have you wanted quote. to be kissed? Yeah. By not a by a heat-seeking missile. No, yeah. I would not. I'm just for the record. All right. If you got a heat-seeking missile, don't get it anywhere near my ass. One no. of Papeo's friends, Bridget Gabriel, runs Act for America the largest grassroots anti-Muslim organization in the country. Gabriel herself has said a practicing Muslim cannot be a loyal citizen of the United States and believes Arab Muslims are a natural threat to civilized people of the world. Yeah. This is just BS. Yeah. She has also bragged about the Secretary of State being a steadfast ally of ours since the day he was elected to Congress. In other words, her anti-Muslim bigoted organization. Yeah. He's an ally. In 2016, ACT gave, that's her group, Pompeo its highest honor, the National Security Eagle Award for Bigotry. I added the bigotry <laughs> part there. Yeah. That's good. good yeah. call. Yeah. By the way, there's also mentioned in this article is one of the, the most dangerous lunatics in Washington, and that's saying something today. That's that Frank Gaffney guy. Yeah, Frank Gaffney runs the Center for Security Policy, which suggested Obama is yeah. a secret Muslim. Yeah, he's one, yeah. Of, the, he's one of the guys who really pushed that. And accused U.S. mosques and Muslim organizations of mounting a stealth jihad against the United States. Yeah, there you go. Pompeo appeared at Gaffney's Center for Security Policy, Security Freedom Radio, 
18 times, 18 times in two years. He also spoke at a Center for Security Policy event in 2015 alongside the far-right Dutch politician Gert Wilders. Oh, yeah. Yeah, He's a real jerk who has called for the eradication of Islam and a ban on the Quran. I think they had to ban the Bible when it's held by these Christian Talibans. Yeah, exactly. In 2015, Pompeo at an evangelical church in his district that specializes in addressing Satanism and paranormal activity. Well, there's a good thing for a church to be doing. And standing in front of a Christian flag, this is Pompeo, spoke of the struggle against radical Islam, the kind of struggle this country has not faced since the Great Wars. This is setting you up for something here, which is a war in the Middle East. And he's Secretary of State, by the way, guys. This is the same church, not the same exact location, but the same (coughs) ideology that Sarah Palin belonged to. She belonged to one of that same exact ideology. Uh, He warned that evil was all around us. This is Pompeo. And cautioned the congregation not to be deterred by those who might call them Islamophobes or bigots. Okay, how about white supremacists? Yeah. Here's a little story for you. Okay. I'll be quick. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse and four other Democrat senators have stood up to the right-wing Republican-stacked Supreme Court with a filing that instructs the right-wing Republican Supreme Court to either drop a New York gun case that it accepted for the coming term or face public reckoning. In other words, they're calling out everything that the Supreme Court has been doing, including Merrick Garland, yeah, including... So, uh, saddling so up are they suggesting the, they come before the committee to discuss it? NRA? This? No, he's just, he included it in the brief. Okay. Now, the brief, uh, it's New York State Rifle and Pistol Association against the city of New York. So he's saying, right. we're going to go after you as far as your connection. Gotcha. I got gotcha. you. You take this up to the Supreme Court, and we're going to question where your alliances are. Yeah. That's Meanwhile, right. in other animal news, a planned animal overpass set to stretch over Los Angeles' 101 freeway entered its final design phase. It's the Liberty Canyon Wildlife Crossing. It's a 200-foot-long, 165-foot-wide bridge expected to provide safe passage for lions, coyotes, deer, lizards, snakes, and other wild creatures. That's right, Mother. And what's great about this is 80% of the funds needed to construct the $87 million bridge will come from private sources. That's a good one. Yeah. The remaining is allocated to conservation projects. It's the biggest in the world. It's also a great place for predators to wait for a snack. And finally. (laughs) Yeah, I can see it now. Hey, we're heading down to the... What would you say if I castrated you right now, Mike? (laughs) It would hurt. Yeah. And I would scream. Uh Uh-huh. Probably a scream that hasn't been heard by humans for many, many decades. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, keep that in mind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A Florida man was arrested after he performed a botched castration in his home. Gary Van Riswick, 74, is charged with practicing medicine without a license resulting in bodily injury. I guess that's a charge. Deputies came to Rip Van Riswick's home after a 9-11 hang-up call. Because <laughs> he didn't want to say, well, yeah, I, you know. I accidentally yeah. In I the botched. home, deputies found a man on a bed with a towel over his groin bleeding heavily. Van Riswick told deputies he had met the patient, his victim, on a website on the dark web for people with a castration fetish. He told his patient, the castratee, that he had experience on animals, and in 2012, he had even removed one of his own testicles. 
You can subscribe to the Weekly Signals Weekly Review podcast at weeklysignals.com. Weeklysignals.com. Subscribe now.